Hi, I'm Jim Drury. You're listening to Fistful of Chords, The Secrets of Songwriting. My guest today is Tim Bricheno, songwriter and lead guitarist with All About Eve, Sisters of Mercy, CNN and Tinstar. Okay, Tim, um, how are you spending lockdown? Uh, well, I'm not, I must admit, I'm, I'm kind of settling into it, but I'm, I must confess I'm not doing a great deal of music, which um, I thought I would miss, but uh, it's actually quite nice to have a little break and just do other stuff. Sometimes you need to do that. So I thought you'd be in there with all sorts of ideas, no? Uh, well, as what I am doing, which is um, quite an, a nice thing, I've wanted to do it for ages and I've resisted doing it for such a long time. But um, in the old days, when you were writing music, the only way to copyright it was to send it to yourself and then never open it. So if anybody actually ripped the ideas off, you'd take the envelope to court and open it like in a, a self-addressed envelope that's registered with the date on it to prove it's yours. That was the only way of doing it. So I opened them all up and listened to them um, the other day and some of the stuff on there is like right back to my uh, early sort of peak in the 80s when I'd just come out of All About Eve before I uh, went to Sisters and it's crammed full of loads of ideas that were never used so I've been archiving those and um, thinking yeah I'm going to use some of these they're really good and, That's fantastic uh, Yeah it's quite nice it's almost like a sort of a a message to myself from the past um, I mean there's about 20 ideas there Wow! so I'm, I'm going to use that as a source material for any new stuff I do I think with Julianne or at least try I mean she might not like them but I'm going to try that's fantastic have you told her yet? I've, I've floated it past her I've said look I've got these cassettes I don't know if they're any good but um, I've got a, sus a suspect there'll be something on there but I haven't spoken to her or contacted her since I've uh, listened to them all. I was surprised. I mean, there's one on there and I just thought, man, this is like a lost a lost classic. I'm going to start that one first. Yeah. Wow, what's it called? Well, it's not called anything. It's just uh, it's just an instrumental. There's no uh, there's no lyrics or melody on it. That's that's always been uh, Julianne's department. I I purely just kind of do you know, instrumentals. Um at least with her. Yeah. So that's how you wrote together. You. That's you, how we wrote together. Yeah. That's would we. You, so would you come up with um, musical ideas and give them to her, or would she write a lyric first, or was it a mix? Uh, back originally, um, it was um, we'd all kind of me, her, and the bass player Andy would all sit in in a room, a little her bed sit, and we'd just um, knock ideas around like riffs, and um, she'd be there, kind of you know guiding that with the the rest of us so we all kind of came up with something instrumentally we were happy with and then she'd take it away and start working on melodies and lyrics so it, it was very compartmentalized um these days it's a bit different uh, it tends to be one of the of us sending music uh to the other one um to work on so when you were working in those early days would it be in, in either of any of the three people's houses? Did you have a set routine where you'd go at a certain time? Or Yeah, it, it was uh, the routine was really, it was very kind of workman-like. Um, uh, me and the bass player, Andy, we lived together in Harlesden. Julianne had a, a bed sit in Kentish Town, and she had a 
what was called a Porter Studio, which is a four-track recording um, thing. And we used to religiously troop over to Julianne's Monday to Friday, uh, guitar and pot noodle in hand, and um, <laughs> we used to just work on music together in that room. Um, and that's how we built up that first album, um, writing in that way with a drum machine. And um, we, I think, you know, it started it started out like that, and up until the first album, it ended it ended like that. With that is how we wrote it um, at that time, which um, was a lovely way to write because you didn't have the sort of um, bluster of a live band. Sometimes when you sort of jamming stuff out in a live band situation the the volume of what you're producing can kind of lull you into false sense of security thinking oh this bit's really good but it's actually just really loud uh when you when you're working quietly you can't rely on that so it's almost like the ideas have to be just strong at conversation volume and if we're sort of living on di or dying in that environment so i think that's why um some of the stuff's so hooky because because it had to be Right, and what kind of period? How long was this period when you were writing before you got the first record deal? Oh, it was um, well. I came down to London when I was twenty-one to hook up with Julianne, um, and I think we got the deal uh, about four years later when I was twenty-five. So we were doing that for four years. That's a long time. Yeah, you. I mean, it, it was. It's thank God for the doll because. You could stay on it for that amount of time then uh, and live um, quite carefully and that's probably something that bands can't do now it's it is i it, i think that one thing that you can't do that anymore as uh, explains why the music scene is kind of a little bit more oh god i don't know what you call it it's it's you can't do that anymore basically and that's why the 80s was really creative because you could it gave almost like loads of people that wanted to do music an, an apprenticeship opportunity to do it. You can't do that now. So um, you're reliant on, you've basically got a year or two, or you get into this sort of trust fund area of uh, bands becoming successful, where they've actually got uh, wealthy parents, or they've got some financial support behind what they're doing to enable them to uh, work on music. That's why there's a lot of middle-class bands. Yeah, Mumford and Sons, Florence and the Machines brings to mind. You know, if they if they were uh, coming from kind of uh, slightly normal or impoverished families, you know, I don't think we'd know about those bands. That's really interesting. And so you said you came down when you were 21. So how did you the rest you and the rest of the band meet? Well, uh, I was in a uh, a band previously to All About Eve um, called Immortai Cry and the drummer for Immortai Cry uh, was going out with a girl who knew Julianne and uh, when Immortai Cry fell to bits um, Julianne um, was uh, interested in me coming down to sort of audition basically for um, what wasn't called All About Eve but which was the fledgling All About Eve and we had a, a different bass player and actually a live drummer at that time. So I came down on the bus, auditioned and got the gig. And then four years of, of honing the craft. 
and getting the songs ready. Yeah, the the bass player and um, drummer from that first inception of it um, disappeared pretty quick, so it just left me and Julianne to kind of crack on with it, really, which is uh, what we did. And I think we found that we, as we went on, we both had a kind of a real love of um, melody and riffs and stuff that perhaps wasn't coming through when there was four of us in the room. It was a bit more um, industrial sounding when we first started out. Right. And you found that the, there was a very complementary style between the two? Yeah. We both liked melody and we both loved um, John Barry. So uh, we were... I mean, certainly I was borrowing loads from uh, the sort of John Barry sort of school of thought of like kind of quite uh, I don't know what you call them they're almost kind of dramatic but sort of beautiful kind of riffs and parts and quite grand sounding chord sequences um, not dark um, but well you've only got to listen to like I tell you what theme from the persuaders we used to listen to that and think that's the sort of music we want to write <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah, tell me about some of the the songs on the album. Maybe um, you know what kind of fool, every angel, some songs like that that became hit singles. Well, probably the the pivotal one, um, which kind of um, showed us the way, was a, a track called "In the Clouds," which was um, uh, we wrote. Uh, I'd say probably about eighty five, um, and. Um, it was a sort of a gem amongst lots of other stuff that sounded a little bit like um, Susie and the Banshees, to be honest. That's we were um, we didn't really have our own thing going on to start off with. We sounded a little bit like lots of other bands. But when we wrote in the clouds, it was it was a such an important track because it had something that we'd been chasing, which, as I say, was this sort of slightly John Barry vibe to the verse. Um, it was a kind of uh, ethereal kind of rock song really it had a big rock riff in a chorus but the verses were so kind of um, the opposite of that the kind of sort of beautiful and kind of uh, light and um, the lyric as well it was it was sort of escapist to the max you know it was it wasn't dark it was it was uplifting and kind of uh, again beautiful and that one song I think gave us almost a template to hang everything else off we did to be honest um, it really showed us where we were going that was the song that was the one right and um, and, and there's an interesting story I think be behind the the writing of Martha's Harbour because you, you you were already in the studio weren't you by this stage yeah yeah Martha's yeah it's um we actually got two for the price of one out of Martha's because the way we used to write was, as I say, we'd kind of um, get chord sequences or riffs together and then we'd find another chord sequence or riff that complemented that one. And um, Bob's your uncle, really. Once you've got those two things going on, two parts flowing in and out of each other, the sort of songwriting war is over, at least from a um, musical point of view. And that's what happened with Martha's. We got this riff, the verse riff, and um, couldn't decide 
if it was an electric song or an acoustic song so um, we did both if there's another song we wrote called wild hearted woman which was also a single off that first album and that's an electric song and the verse riff is the same as the verse riff for Martha's not a bit the same exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> and that was on a day off wasn't it am I right in thinking that yeah we did it we uh, we got as I say got the verse riff and then um, me and Julianne did something which we have not done before or since which went and sat underneath uh, an apple tree at the residential recording studio we were working at and tried to write the chorus for Martha's Harbour which we did and um, you know we've never done that before or since perhaps we should have done that a bit more <laughs> <laughs> does that mean then you came back in and said to the producer what do you think of this and then it edged out another couple of songs that you would have had on there otherwise well there's actually quite a good story about Martha's Arbor which is we didn't show it to anybody because it wasn't totally finished all we got is the um, the music at that point and then Julianne went away and worked on the melody and the lyric and then while we were in the studio recording the first album we didn't have Martha's and um, the producer said um, you know why don't you two sit down and sort of write write something while we go to the pub so the whole band and the producer left us in the studio with the engineer and um, me and Julianne faffed around a bit trying something and then I think we actually just started recording um, what was Martha's Harbour for the first time and uh, we threw it down on tape everybody came back from the pub and um, they were knocked out with it and the producer says oh that's brilliant um, let's see if you've got a better one in you of that same um, version so we were like yeah okay we'll try we'll try a few more see if we can top it anyway we were at it for about half an hour and I said to him I think actually the one we did when you were at the pub was the one these are the ones just not cutting it and there was a dreadful silence in the control room and um, they confessed they'd actually gone over that one and we're now recording over with um, these ones we were trying to do over the one we did now that version is still the best version of Martha Sarber the rest of the the ones we did after that and the one that you know as the single was a frustrated attempt to try and top that demo they erased so we were doing it in an absolute peak of frustration and fury Oh no! It was the worst fucking recording session I've ever had to do because I was so cross. Oh no! So how so do you feel like that every time you hear that song? Does it come? No, because that memory... because it was a hit. But I tell you what, that song was just cursed, wasn't it? From its inception to its top of the pops appearance, it was just a series of disasters. But somehow it ended up being a hit. That's fantastic. I wasn't going to mention the top of the pops appearance. Oh yeah, but you have mentioned it now. Oh yeah, I don't mind. Yeah. So um, yeah, tell us about that and how it actually, in a way, helped the single. Yeah, well, very simply, it was um, uh, you know it was a first time to go on top of the pops, which at the time was like a real rite of passage for anybody that's kind of grown up with top of the pops, like I had uh, my generation. It was. You know, it was God was top of the pops. Getting on top of the pops was, you've arrived. You know, so we were on it for the first time, um, miming, as that was the way it was done in those days. The, you basically mime to a backing track, uh, 
um, they announced that we were about to perform and somebody had forgot to switch on the monitors in the studio so um, we couldn't hear anything at all um, the crowd was stood, stood there looking at us we were looking at them we could see the film was going out live because the red lights on the camera were uh, showing which camera was being used and um, then about halfway through this horrible process the track lurches in and we were just the ultimate humiliation of just having to join in with it and mime along at that point just torture <laughs> oh, no. yeah it's still hard to watch it's still real hard to watch in fact I can't watch it I've, I've tried a couple of times but um, it's just like being right back there when you watch it just thinking you poor sods <laughs> <laughs> but it, of course it there was a positive side to this yeah it felt like the end of the world immediately afterwards um, that you know that was it we'd had our chance and we'd somehow blown it um, but as it turned out you know it was the best bit of the best bit of publicity we could have had and um, everybody was talking about it the next day of course um, consequently off the back of that it, uh, who's to say would it have gone up the charts like it did we just don't know but it did go up the charts off the back of that and also we got um, um, to go and play again actually live the following week so we were on top of the pops two weeks in a row one with an absolute car crash the next week we sort of redeemed ourselves so we were very much in the sort of public mind I guess and the thing went top 10 and it wasn't the first single on the album was it? I don't think no it wasn't We'd, I had In The Clouds I think was the first single and that did alright that went into the 30s top 30 and then I think we had Every Angel after that one and uh, then Wild Hearted Woman, and then um, it was in. Uh, then it was Martha's. So, were you surprised that that did the best of all, or is that a sort of a general process? You don't put your first single out as the best one when you're a new band. Um, I think the record company very much felt that um, they wanted to sort of build up to something like Martha's, um, rather than just go with that off the bat. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I, when I, when we did Martha's, I just thought to, I thought it was a good song, but I didn't think, oh, this is an obvious hit. I still don't think it's an obvious hit. It mm. was, it was out of its, out of its place in the eighties. You know, it was a, it was an acoustic ballad, a nice one, but it was, you know, we were talking about this, you know, amongst all the other stuff going on in the eighties, which was really sort of synth based. It was well out of its kind of comfort zone for what was fashionable at the time. So it was a real anomaly. Um, not an obvious hit at the time. No. Um, so would you were you expecting to have um, the album go into the top ten and to have four hit singles off, off the album, or were you surprised? Um, yeah, I was definitely surprised because we'd had so many kind of uh, disappointments along the way when um, we were trying to get somewhere so many near misses I mean that's the thing most bands um, when you actually see them by the point, the point they've got to sort of hit records and on the telly there's been a lot of kind of disappointment up to up to that point 
Uh, I mean, we were nearly signed about two or three times, I think, before we actually did get signed by a record company. So close, and then knocked back at the last minute. So uh, I think there was a little bit of kind of pinching ourselves initially when we first got uh, on board with a, a proper record deal, which was how long is this going to last? Are we going to be successful? It's one thing to get a record deal and then it's another thing to start selling records. So, yeah, it was amazing when we did actually start selling them. It was like, okay, yeah, this really is happening and we really are going somewhere. And how does your life change at that point? Um, well, it changes in the sense that um, the one thing which was which everybody says, oh, you know, um, about money doesn't bring you happiness but when you don't add any money <laughs> which we hadn't <laughs> it was brilliant to actually finally have some cash i remember um you know we didn't eat out so what we did initially was we used to re <laughs> we used to go to uh, the aberdeen steakhouse as a band <laughs> and it thinking that you know this was kind of uh this is quite a big deal going to the Aberdeen Steakhouse and having um, steak and chips. <laughs> it felt like the lap of luxury, and of course, um, you didn't have to worry about paying your bills anymore. Um, it, it didn't become a problem when, and that was very simply a, a massive weight off our shoulders. We could just concentrate on being kind of creative and not having to worry about the cash. That was brilliant. Um, outside of that, I think. Um, it was nice to be uh, recognised for what you were doing. Um, I guess the downside of it was, um, particularly where I was from in Huddersfield, um, people treated you kind of two different ways, really. They were either kind of absolutely kind of enamoured to be with you because you were in this band, or they were, there was a little bit of, just because you've got that record, you think you're good. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of that, quite a lot of that, yeah. which was um, that thing I uh, really found difficult about the North, which is one of the reasons I left, which was this kind of don't get ideas above your station kind of attitude. Yes. Um, that came to the fore when I went back to Yorkshire, along with a lot of lovely stuff, which was, oh, you know, you've done all right for yourself and... But it was a little bit weird because people definitely did start treating you differently. Yes. That was odd. And what was the was there a huge pressure to then think, well, we spent four years writing this first album and we're probably going to have six months or so to do the second one, the difficult second one. What we should have done, which we didn't do, was we should have thought, OK, we had a very simple way of working, which, as I said, was sitting in a room with um, a drum machine uh, me, Julianne and Andy and just carefully crafting these songs quite quietly until we got something we liked but what we did do is we went into a residential recording studio with our new drummer under the advice of um, the record company and management and said right write some songs you know as a live band now we'd not done that before um, and I got to be honest with you it was it was hard work um, it didn't feel natural way to do it. I know you've written um, a couple of songs that you, you put out last year online um, with Julianne, um, Pale Blue Earth and Seance. Do you feel in any way there's a, a little bit of unfinished business? I think the thing is, um, 
with uh, writing with Julianne, there's something which I've not really managed to entirely capture with anybody else. And I don't know what it is. I don't even want to think about it too much. But it, there's something there which, um, w when I get together and write with her, something happens. I was amazed when we started writing again. Like, I mean, let's face it, it's like 30 years after we wrote all the other stuff. You know, how is it possible we can still do it and it still sounds fresh and good? I mean, I think that track Pale Blue Earth that we wrote together, the first one, that's as good as anything we ever did back in the day. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. And you were doing it remotely? Yeah, that's right, even remotely, you know. I mean, I still prefer to be sat in a room uh, writing. Um, that's the way I like to do it, because it's more fun. Um, but the reality is that she lives in Bath, um, I live down here, um, so we can't do that, so we have to do it this way, but it still works. Do you think there's any chance of a, of a full album? I don't know. We've, we haven't put that sort of pressure on ourselves, we're just doing it like one track at a time. Uh, and I've got to be honest, we're kind of doing it for ourselves really, because we enjoy the results and... Um, I think the thing is also is um, the sort of music I want to make uh, is like the music she wants to make and, and that's so important and um, yes. you know a lot of the uh, music that um, people want to do particularly at the age I'm at now you know um, a lot of people just want to do straight ahead rock music you know kind of um, they want to kind of make a racket make a loud racket you know when they get this sort of testosterone beast going i don't want to do that i want to do something that's kind of like we always did which is kind of uh there's some beauty in it and trying to talk a guy into doing that <laughs> in a band um is you know it's like what do you mean <laughs> what do you mean you want to do something beautiful there's um it's not for everybody, but she gets no. it and I get it. So um, I think that was kind of really why we started again. I was moaning yes. to her saying, I don't want to do dad rock. I want to do this. And um, I think from that, it's sort of fanned a little kind of flame somewhere in both our brains. So we, we gave it another go. I suppose the, the difficulty is that you're in your... Uh, both have other professional careers families and, and it's it's not like you can just pop around the corner and spend uh, three weeks sitting in a living room doing this kind of stuff no and I think in, in fairness going back to your other point you know what's the quality control going to be like if we did that we'd certainly write a bunch of songs but I think if the way the reason one of the reasons that first album is so good is because it evolves slowly over time Yes. You know, one track at a time. Getting rid of all the crap tracks and just ending up with the cream of the crop. And that's why first albums are so good. So I think if there was uh, an album, then it would happen really slow and it would almost, be, almost be a compilation of these individual tracks that we release very slowly as and when they come along. Now that makes sense. Mm. So after after um, all about Eve, you joined Sisters of Mercy as they were recording Vision Thing, third album. Um, what kind of process was that like? Very different, I imagine. 
Yeah, it was. I mean, um, uh, it it was initially. I wasn't I wasn't sure about doing it because um, I'd got some vague idea in the back of my mind. I was going to start a brand new band off, <clears throat> um, but it was definitely the right thing to join the sisters at that time. Um, and I got to be honest, I absolutely loved um, being in that band and touring around the world with them it was uh it was all the stuff that i didn't get to do with all about eve all about eve we had loads of success creatively um but we didn't really do a great deal of touring outside of england but you know the sisters went around the world it was amazing and what were they like on the road and and in the studio uh in the studio i kind of um i joined very kind of quite late in the day all the material was written so I was just involved in the recording process but again that was quite nice at the time because I just got to get the guitar out and play um, you know play what I wanted on top of what they'd done which was um, relatively kind of easy for me to do and I enjoyed doing that uh, I got on with them all very well indeed I mean um, Andrew had kind of slightly got a bit of a reputation for being a tricky customer but I hit it off with him and we got on <coughs> we got on really well same with Tony <coughs> excuse me the bass player and Andreas the other guitarist we were just it was like it, you like you want it to be in a band really where you're out with kind of your mates uh, having a good time in each other's company for like crazy amounts of time you got to get on and um, Tony in particular made sure that the gigs were loads of fun you know uh, he made every night into a, a party afterwards which um, was just you know they were just fantastic days full of full of laughter booze drugs the rest <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was just an amazing time yeah and so how did it all come to an end that well um, it became apparent that um, after two years of touring, there probably wasn't going to be uh, any new album. And I kind of signed up on the idea that, yeah, we'll do all this touring, but, you know, there has to be an album at the end of it. I, ultimately, that's the bit I like doing. I like writing and recording. <coughs> and um, when I realised <coughs> that wasn't going to happen, I started to get a little bit itchy feet. I didn't know it wasn't going to happen. I just got a sense of like, I don't hear a new Sisters album arriving. So I started to think, OK, well, I'll still stay in the Sisters and do the touring, but I'm going to definitely start fishing around for someone to work with to make um, uh, some music with, some new music with. And also my um, ideas about music would started to shift quite a lot as well. Um, and the music I wanted to make definitely didn't fit into the sisters camp or the All About Eve camp. Uh, I had a real sort of epiphany of what I wanted to try. So that's when I uh, went out looking for someone to work with it, which happened to be Dave, the singer from CNN and Tin Star. So what was that um, style you wanted? It was, um, it was basically, I was listening to loads of um, um, public enemy. Um, which I st which we toured with with the sisters, and I just fell in love with how they wrote um, hooks. You know, up up until that point, I was like a kind of a your typical sort of white indie kid. I understood melody, and I understood chord sequences and how to put them together. But 
but what I didn't get was which was what they were doing which was like almost like a another way was the idea of kind of rhythmic hooks and chants and I just thought this is this is amazing you know if you apply this idea of kind of using rhythm and chant like hooks to um, rock music then all of a sudden you're kind of getting into an area I haven't been into before and it, and it felt quite exciting particularly as a uh, I wanted to mix it up with um, some electronic element uh, as well mainly coming from the rhythm and you know I'd recently got a sampler which I totally got I totally understood what it was for it was for grabbing other bits of pieces and somehow reappropriating them and feeding in into what you do so I wanted to do this hybrid thing which was half kind of um, rock half electronic and not about melody it was about hooks I mean it, sound, it sounds pretty unadventurous now there's but at the time, it felt like quite an exciting thing to be experimenting with. Yeah. And so your your first album, Thrill Kisser, was recorded in Tim's flat. Is that correct? Uh, that's Tin Star. Um, the first CNN album. Oh, yeah. OK, the, go back to that. That was uh, that was um, recorded. Um, yeah, that was recorded in my hometown in Huddersfield in a in a. Um, like a um, residential, not residential, like um, a, a small studio in Huddersfield by by ourselves. And that morphed into, Tinstar morphed from CNN, basically. So what was, what, why did it change? Um, Is it just personnel? What it, well, I think what it was, was, um, you know, CNN happened... Oh, hang on a minute, somebody's trying to... Oh, it's gone. CNN um, happened right in the middle of Britpop, so um, we were like, you know, what we were doing was nothing to do with that, and um, we had limited success, and um, we ended up um, being dropped by the record company, so basically me, um, Dave and Tim Gordean, Tim Gordean was already in um, CNN by now as the bass player, we did what we always did really, which was we regrouped. Um, thought about where we wanted to go next and wrote some uh, songs around a, a slightly different concept which was we started watching um, uh, a lot of David Lynch films and really getting into the kind of vibe and the music and the mood and we thought yeah let's this is this is again this is an interesting thing that we could kind of explore let's let's use that idea as a bit of a touchstone for a new thing and write pieces of music or songs that we could imagine being in David Lynch films, and and that was the that was the new um, kind of concept that we used really to sort of write all the Tin Star stuff. And um, we got signed off the off the back of some demos that we did. And was that uh, was the writing process similar in that you you were more in charge of the music and Dave was in charge of the lyrics, or was it more of a a mix? Now this was different this time. It's um, from CNN onwards. It was very much the, um, uh, a real kind of smorgasbord of how we did things. Sometimes it would be a, uh, a just mucking around, writing together um, chord sequences, and then David take it away under the lyric and the melody. Sometimes it was um, I'd bring forwards a fully formed song with lyrics and melody. Sometimes Dave would bring a form as a fully formed song with lyrics and melody and we'd hack away at those. So 
if you look at the writing credits for the first album, um, the first, um, I think it's the first CNN album, it's, it's all over the place. The Tin Star one, we still did it the same way. Some songs were mine, some songs were Dave, some of them were collaborations between the three of us, some of them were actually songs just written by Tim Gordine on his own. So we had a real open door policy to how we did things. Right. And you and you had some success. Your head was obviously a big hit. Yeah, that was that was that was ex as exciting, if not more exciting than Martha's Harbour being a hit because uh, um, it was so unexpected. I mean, Martha's was a surprise, but Head was so unexpected. We were, um, you know, Tin Star at the time couldn't get arrested in England. Nobody really, you know, we were playing to maybe like a hundred people. Um, but we had a record deal. For some reason, um, American College Radio, we hadn't even played in America. They picked up this track that we wrote called Head and started playing it. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until that ended up being in the top 10 in America. And then all our energy went into uh, basically uh, hanging out and promoting and playing in, in the States. So we were we were actually, um, you know, a, a big indie band in the States. We did loads of touring over there. Uh, yet we, we, we still didn't mean anything in the UK. It was odd. Was the fact that you were... Um having to work in america a lot was that part of the reason why it all why it, it finished well unfortunately i mean it's uh, again it's uh, these things this hand of god stuff comes along occasionally and just you know like the thing we're in now it, the the thing that put the kibosh on um, tin star we were all geared up to release our second album uh the whole band was moving out to san francisco uh, I'd, you know, severed all my ties here, got my plane ticket, got my visa. Basically about to start a new life in America, which I was so excited about. I mean, I can't tell you, I was, it was, I'd wanted to do it for years and now it was actually happening. And then 9-11 happened and um, basically the record company we were signed to was a subsidiary of Virgin Records. Virgin uh, Airline planes were grounded for like, I think a month after 9-11 they lost loads of money the record company went under and we went under with it our way just stopped and that was it we weren't going anywhere oh that's terrible yeah, that. fucking bad I tell you what it was uh, that was that was a tough year for the whole band because it was literally like having the rug pulled from underneath, underneath your feet from all all the minute you've you know it was definitely uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. We we were, uh, it was, it was grim. <laughs> uh, so what happened yeah. after that? Uh, I think the following six months, for certainly for me and Dave, was just a blur of booze. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, oh, we could, you know, for a start off. Apart from that, we were in the horrible situation, which I'm sure you remember, was you all thought you were, like, going to get bombed, you know? <laughs> Didn't 9-11 in London. You thought, well, it's going to happen to us now. So there was a kind of a, a real feeling of, like, we'd got this double whammy of uh, we'd, we'd lost everything. And also, we were under the threat of some sort of 
you know, are we gonna, are we next? Yes. It was a horrible time. But, um, yeah, that's the way, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, my life now wouldn't be the way it was if I'd have, uh, I'd have uh, swanned off to America. I would have had a very different life. And some of the things I've got now, I wouldn't have, you know, so I, in retrospect, it all worked out fine. Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, at that point, you just decided to go on to other things. Um, you decided to go into some teaching songwriting. Would that be was that the next natural step? Or well, I've got to be honest with you. The, the next natural step after that was um, screw music. <laughs> it's it's been a hard mistress to me. Um, I'm doing something else. So I actually went. Um, I've always. Uh, I thought I want to do something that's kind of good for the soul. And uh, music can be good for the soul, but when it's your job and it becomes kind of about entertaining people, which, frankly, it does once you actually start doing it as a job, um, it can start to feel a little bit um, fragile and ephemeral. And I think because of the whole 9-11 kick in the pants, I just thought, I want something that's just sort of less of a roller coaster ride, something that's going to kind of allow me to cruise for a little bit so i i um enrolled on a um uh a horticultural course i thought i'm going to be a gardener <laughs> which i did for um a couple of years and then eventually uh um music pulled me back in and i started teaching songwriting did you think you needed to have that break yeah somehow, I did. to get back yeah into I, def it? I definitely did i definitely needed uh a break from it to, to actually just find about where, whether I actually still cared about music anymore um, I, di I found out I did and I never stopped playing and I was still making music with Dave on the side but it was quite nice to do something that wasn't about music as a way of making a living just for a, just for a while just to see what the reality was of course the reality was <laughs> having a proper job is fucking hard work so I went, <laughs> I went back to music <laughs> and so uh, what was teaching uh, what was songwriting teaching on? well uh, that proved to be the hardest work of the lot I mean I had some v vague fantasy when I went into uh, teaching songwriting that it would be kids hanging on my every word as I spread my <laughs> knowledge <laughs> of course the reality of it is it's bloody crowd control of 16 year old boys and girls that have got a whole lot of stuff on the mind and don't even remember who you are because they weren't even born <laughs> <laughs> so why are these people there studying music if they don't want to learn how to write songs they do want to learn how to write songs but but they're also you know they're full of kind of piss and vinegar like we were when we were 16 you're just some geezer stood at the front um, with grey hair trying to tell them how to do stuff you know you, you so would you have been the same if you'd been in their shoes if you'd gone to a songwriting class would you have felt the same no i'd have loved it because the thing is one of the reasons i didn't go to college uh when i um uh, left school was because you, you couldn't go to anything like um the thing i was teaching you could only go and study classical music and that was it i'd, I'd have bitten somebody's arm off to go and study songwriting and and popular music uh so no uh, i think that was the thing i i just um this generation of kids I were teaching, they, I, they, I just thought, man, you just don't know how lucky you are to be he here all together. 
um, doing this. It's it was hard work deciding to write songs and pursue it as a, a career when I was a kid because there was no there's no way of learning it outside of doing it. There's no internet. You just had to be really shit at it until you got better at it. <laughs> but but out of that, there's certain people um, that I met that just drink it up and um, get it and want to do it and um, they're the ones that kind of uh, inspire you to kind of keep on doing it and um, that was lovely but I must say um, I'm essentially an introvert not an extrovert most teachers I think who are really good at it have certainly a foot in the extrovert camp that that wasn't that was never me that's funny because if you saw you on stage, your persona was very different from that. But I suppose that you get into that performing. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things I actually used to say to the uh, the students, which was essentially um, I'm an introvert that's had to to put on an extrovert cloak to perform, and that that is actually took me a long time to learn. Uh, I used to be terrible on stage. I used to feel so self conscious and just stand there play my guitar and get off. And um, I learnt from watching other bands um, that actually you just have to, to people are, want you to entertain them. When you're when you pay money to go and see a gig, you you want a show. And I just clocked onto that at some point in the eighties when we started to snowball. And I thought, yeah, I've you know it's time to put on a show. And I actually really got into it. I thought, yeah, this is fine. It doesn't have to be who I really am. It's I'm just giving people what they expect, and um, then I step out of it when I get off. You know, I'm not yes. I'm not an extrovert, but I can do it on stage. Yeah. Uh, so before we come to to the end, so I've just got a question about the back to the lockdown. Are you li what are you listening to to get you through? It? Uh, well, I'm not listening to anything at the minute because I've got a tinnitus spike. So. <laughs> <laughs> radio oh, silence no. radio silence at the moment um so um no i'm not listening to any music whatsoever at the moment i um unfortunately when these things happen i just have to ride them out and then i can start listening to music once uh, the whining has subsided to the back of my brain for a bit so finally what would if someone said to you what are your favorite three songs that you've ever written i know that's a very hard question could you have you got an answer for that yeah, um, it'd be In the Clouds, it'd be one of them, because as I say, it was such a an important song for us to write. It showed the way for where, how to write all the other stuff, really. Um, the other one that springs to mind is one with Tinstar called Disconnected Child, which was a single f for um, Tinstar. And another one probably um head although i can't really lay claim to head all i did with head was um mess around with it essentially that was a david tomlinson song that allowed me and tim gordine to heavily butcher <laughs> 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 which we did yeah uh, well that's brilliant that's been really fascinating tim and uh thank you so much for coming on and uh Stay healthy in the lockdown and hopefully you can get out into the garden to get your fingers green again. Thanks, man.